Hey everyone, and welcome to the 23rd episode of The Liam McCullen Show. Today I'm going to be talking to Commander Dale Brown from Threat Management Center, a private security firm based out of Detroit. Brown started Threat Management Center at a time when people really couldn't depend on the police in Detroit. There was also a lot of violent crime going on, and Brown kind of took the opportunity to provide a service to use nonviolent tactics to reduce violent crime. I figured it was important to share this story and also kind of give a private solution to all of this mess that we're seeing today. Dale told me before the interview that he doesn't consider himself a police force and he doesn't want to police people. All he wants to do is protect people. And I want to read this quote from NBC Detroit. He was interviewed by them. In 2014, he said, and we help people in all communities. Let me be clear, 50% of domestic violence victims that are sent to us by courts, domestic violence shelters, and now prosecutor's offices, these are people they think are going to be killed. Since there is no police organization that keeps people from being killed, specifically, we are tasked and we do it as a volunteer component of our bodyguard program for my self-defense school that I created. So alongside this for-profit private security firm that he has, he also has some volunteer services alongside. He's also gone to high schools to teach high school teachers how to disarm intruders if they have weapons. And he also teaches self-defense. Like he has a program where he has people from age four to 17 being taught, you know, how to evade gunfire or basic first aid and stuff like that. So I think that This is going to be a pretty interesting topic, and he definitely has some words to say about what we're seeing today with police brutality and the issues with race. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Here he is. Well, Commander Dale Brown of the Detroit Threat Management Center, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and to get started, uh, could you kind of give a summary of Threat Management Center's mission and why you guys started it and what you do? Uh, Well, I started teaching... Urban Survival Tactics in 1994 in Detroit because I saw that people needed assistance and needed to be able to help themselves and protect themselves. There was a woman that was chased off a bridge in front of a lot of people and no one could help her because the three men were big and scary and she died in front of her daughter after being attacked. And I thought if I had people on that bridge trained in tactics that I know that 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 woman would not have been chased off that bridge and we could take a terrible story removed it from the city of Detroit, and most importantly, a little girl would not have watched her mother get attacked and taken and and essentially scared off a bridge and died in front of her. So my point was to take the training to people that really could benefit from it and to do my part to make the world a safer place through education. My idea was to help people protect themselves, to empower them with the ability to understand law was what makes our training system, the training system I created called the Eclecticon so unique. Um, eclectic meaning blend of styles and KM is a Japanese suffix which means systems so or blend of styles, place, or system. Um, Eclecticon was specifically designed to teach urban survival tactics to people so they could protect themselves. What I found out was that essentially the people needed actual protection. And I found that out by constantly calling the police, constantly interacting with the police, and finding out the police had a different mission than what I thought people were looking for and needed. So it was out of the need that I created a uh, entity that could meet the needs of the people, the corporations, the communities. And our objective is to take it to country and country and different countries. And we have people that are very interested worldwide. And what we have to offer as a result of what started 
just empowering people in 1994, an educational process. And what makes our education so unique is that I started off just wanting to teach people how to understand the law, how to understand um, how to use a pistol, a shotgun, a rifle, how to use a knife, a baton, uh, an environmental weapon to defend themselves, but most importantly, to do it legally. So I teach law. So I start off teaching law and tactics, and I thought this would be the greatest system in the world if people knew how to protect themselves and do it legally. Because I realized as a private investigator, after I got out of the military, I was an airborne paratrooper, I realized that people don't know the law. I've been a martial artist my whole life, a firearm instructor. I was a fire instructor of um, NRA certified of five disciplines. I taught hundreds of people how to use guns. And then I found out that guns not only don't make you safe, which is why the Secret Service has never used a gun, but yet has defended people every day. Uh, it's because the gun is actually normally not really an advantage in close quarters, like big muscles. Big muscles seem like they're an advantage, yet you've never seen a bodybuilder step into the ring with any fighter. <laughs> not one time. Right. Arnold Schwarzenegger, yes, he made millions, but he would have made many more millions in a much shorter period of time going into a boxing match. Yet he knew he can't box. And that's just not even true because he definitely can't do MMA. Uh, none of the great bodybuilding champions uh, can ever use that muscle in a fighting situation because it doesn't, although it looks and seems applicable, it's not. That's what guns are. If guns were helpful, uh, truly, in close quarters and dealing with violent threat, then Secret Service would have used it to protect the president, which they did not. Um, although they carry them, they never actually use them. Uh, in fact, when President Reagan was shot, Secret Service was able to defend him uh, without using a gun because the gun would have been worse. So the reality is guns don't make us safe. Every dead police officer had at least two guns at the time of their death. And there's no way you're going to take a class and make yourself better than any of the dead police officers who are doing their job and died protecting themselves and others using one or both of the two guns they had on their person. So. I, I say all that to say that teaching gun dependency, teaching that uh, the gun is a solution doesn't stand up to reality. And now I have heuristic, uh, empirical education that I got from, from actual application. Uh, thousands of my team members have deployed over the past 25 years uh, throughout Detroit and surrounding communities, even other countries. And we have made people safe, safely. And so that's what we specialize in. We specialize in teaching that. And we have protective service team members that are trained as bodyguards in the VIPERS program. VIPERS stands for Violence Intervention Protective Emergency Response System. So it's a uh, acronym for the training system, which also uh, enables people to be hired by companies, corporations, communities uh, to provide executive type protection, tactical and practical. So it's not just uh, executive protection, it's actually really how to protect using psychology, understanding law and having the skills to create a non-adversarial interaction for a non-violent outcome. So it really is a way, a paradigm shift in how we view uh, safety and how we can create safety safely. Great. Can you kind of explain a little bit about how Detroit looked when you first started this, how crime was treated by the police departments there and kind of what you observed and how you felt like you needed to start this? When I first started this, the Police department was a lot different than it is now overall. Um, 
the what I saw was uh, as I called the police constantly before taking any action, uh, and I encouraged all citizens to call 911 before doing anything uh, involving criminal activity, and uh, never confronting their criminals without calling 911 first. And when you confront them, you confront them only to create safety, not to you know, hurt people or to use force. Um, the force should only be used to protect yourself and others if the person's violent towards someone. So if someone steals something, for example, you wouldn't go beat them up or shoot them uh, or even touch them because life is more important than law and people's lives are more important than people's property. That's what we believe. So um, we don't believe in touching people over uh, property. It's insured and you can buy another one. Um, and we just don't believe anyone should be killed. You a thief shouldn't be killed when you're stealing something. So that's just part of you know what I created here is a system that makes sense. Um, killing people over insurance properties is crazy. So uh, what I found though was that police were interested in prosecution more than protection. And I and the distinction was created through actual um, application. I thought protection and policing were the same thing. So I thought. By calling the police, they would come to protect. And sometimes they did. However, that's not the purpose. The purpose is law enforcement. You can't enforce laws if laws have not been broken. We don't think of it that way, but that's what law enforcement is. It is the enforcement of laws that have been broken, which means a predator has already raped, robbed, and killed someone when the police are able to enforce laws. Well, that's fine, except that's not what most people are interested in. That's definitely not what I'm interested in. I don't want to find out who raped, robbed, and killed anyone. What I would like to do is not let someone get raped, robbed, or killed. So I created the system, the actual methodology, the actual uh, method by which we can actually create conditions where people are not raped, robbed, and killed. And it turns out that that is also profitable. So what I've been able to do is, is create a, a direct correlation between the protection of people and the prosperity of people. There's a direct correlation. If you keep people in any community protected from predation, then prosperity is a naturally occurring byproduct for everyone. Whoever's wealthy will simply get wealthy. If you keep poor people alive and safe, don't let them get home invaded, raped, robbed, and murdered, they will pay their bills, they will uh, patronize stores, they will have more money because they have more life, they can pay more taxes to the police department, Everyone's a winner if everyone's protected. And no one is a winner if anyone is preyed upon, whether they're rich or whether they're poor. If poor people are killed, raped, robbed, and killed, and other people are incarcerated, not only does property value go down, quality of life goes down, less taxpayers are alive, but you also have to house the person in prison, which it costs 100000 per prisoner in a government prison 300,000 on average for a private prison. There is no benefit for the civilian population, for the, for the actual public. There is no benefit in prosecution. The benefit is only in protection. But from watching television, we you know, got a distorted view of society and we actually started liking the idea of prosecution, which makes absolutely no sense. So the police have a metrics for a negative, which is all the things you don't want to happen. And the police were never given, assigned, or rewarded for positive metrics. There is no reward for the prevention of crime for any police department in America. And we need to change that. We need to reward police 
for what we want, not what we don't want. Can so you, if we don't want the cobra effect, we don't create the cobra effect. And that's what we're doing when we reward for negative occurrences. If we're saying, if you have more arrests for drugs, there will be more drug arrests. In fact, there'll be more selling of drugs to catch more people doing drugs, right. which is deleterious to property value, quality of life, and you have to pay for the incarceration and prosecution. There's no money in prosecuting the poor people. And no one wants to prosecute all the rich people and get all their money because at the end of the day, once you prosecute all the rich people and put them all in white-collar prisons and create an entire prison system for them, once again, we're going to lose all of our money again. There's no societal way to prosper from predation and prosecution. But everyone will prosper from protection naturally. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology that you mentioned right there and the tactics that you might use? So the methods and tactics we use are very unique because they're based on psychology, not physicality. So some of the things we've done um, over the years is uh, we tell criminals that there are cameras watching out for them, looking for them to do crime and to be careful not to get caught. The criminals don't look at us as their adversary. They look at it as though we're giving them some information they didn't have. And uh, they believe us and they simply go away. When it's not even true, the police aren't looking at any camera images or video. Uh, that's a lie. <laughs> and that lie results in the criminals being so paranoid they stay away from this area. Um, so one of the things we did that was extreme was uh, we pulled up on some guys selling drugs. There was eight drug dealers on a corner. Uh, we made a PA announcement in an undercover vehicle. Uh, this is just some people from my staff, or me and one guy. And this is in 1995. So I, I go on a PA system and I said, clear the area, no drug dealing. And this is public streets. This is on East Jefferson in Detroit, a six-lane road near the mayor's mansion and uh, in a place where families live. 90% of the people in this one square block, which is approximately 400 families, are just regular people. 10% are gang members, criminals violent people that are um, literally preying upon 90% of the people that live there. And so these drug dealers, which are thug dealers, are not actually making a lot of money. They're actually just dealing drugs enough to buy guns and mayhem. So they're not, the real drug dealers have apartments and houses and they don't make trouble. You never really see them. Uh, these are thug dealers. They're out on the street corners and they're troublesome people. They actually harass people. They harm they beat up people for no reason. That's who these particular kinds of guys are. These aren't just drug dealers. And there's a distinction. The drug dealers, again, were people we never really had contact with because we're not interested in drugs and, and those issues. We were interested in anything that was a quality of life issue that interfered with people's ability to live and have a good quality of life right here in America. And that was the whole point, that everyone should be able to live safely. So I go up to this group of guys in a PA, with a PA system of uh, handheld PA, and I yell, no drug dealing, clear the area. Two of the men step forward. One guy looks like The Rock. Uh, MMA, uh, I mean, uh, the, the wrestler, The Rock, the actor, uh, with a giant afro. And he is about six foot six, uh, and with the afro, seven feet tall. <laughs> and um, he is big as The Rock. Looks very much like him with goatee. And the guy next to him, um, is more like my size, 5'9", 200 pounds. And this guy has um, uh, long hair, like braids, and a goatee. And they're definitely thug 
um, guys from the movies. Like, you ever saw thugs, gang members in the movies? These are like ultimate looking thugs. And um, so, as, it, as we come up to them, two of the guys come up, uh, these, two, these two thug dealers, uh, which we call, we actually call them thug animals. These are guys that even you gave them the money or gave them a car during carjacking, they'd still shoot you. So that's not really like a criminal who simply would take the car and take your money and leave. Right. These are the kind of guys who would actually hurt you just because you're there. Uh, and so these are just violent people. And um, so two of the guys step forward, these two big guys, well, one big guy and the other guy, right, Roman-sized guy. And I took my baton and I cracked it across his shin. And you heard it crack. And then he grabbed me in the air, lifted me off the ground. This is in the middle of the street, in the public street. Um, lifted me in the air. Then I choked him with my baton, dragged him across the street, and no one ever saw him again. Uh, and as a result, that street corner, which had been inhabited by illegal activity that oppressed the families and made them feel terror, uh, never had thug dealers on it again. Wow. That was in 1995. The thug dealers have been terrorizing the families since the 60s, apparently. I don't know. I, I didn't live there more than a year before that. And what was amazing was the families could now go to the store without feeling terror, without being harassed. And uh, what's interesting is the store owner, you know, he called, I don't know if he called the police, but he definitely called the, the building owners we worked for and said, you know, your guys are abducting people and, um, you know, just attack these guys and abducting them. And so, you know, we took those guys away. No one ever saw them there again. And so then the building owners uh, actually had a meeting with me. I showed them the video because we video recorded it with a giant video camera with a VHS tape. That's how it was a year. <laughs> and, uh, so, and so I showed it to these extremely rich men who owned multiple buildings, one of which looked like uh, Bill Clinton, the president, talked like him, and owned five cancer vehicles in Florida and three big buildings in Detroit. Wow. And another guy um, looked like uh, uh, Dick Cheney, <laughs> and probably this is rich or richer than him. He owned multiple skyscrapers in Detroit. And so they looked at this video, and they're like, my God, you have abducted these men, and, and you, you have kidnapped them. You attacked them. This is illegal. I was like, uh, sir, first of all, I don't do illegal things. Uh, number two, if I did something illegal, I promise I wouldn't video record it and then show it to you. Number three, if I was the kind of guy that abducted violent gang members and video recorded it and showed it to you, you should be scared of me. <laughs> Clearly, that's a bad guy. Can you imagine? Like, these guys are very they're very uh, trusting or very ignorant. They just told a guy they think abducts people that he's fired. They actually fired him. They're like, you're fired because you broke the law. You abducted these people. My God, what were you thinking? I said, what were you thinking? I said, you really think I'm going to break the law? And then tell you, then show you the video. That's just very disrespectful. Yeah. I said, first of all, those men work for me. Wow. They were like, what? I was like, those two guys are part of our team. The next day they got a haircut, which is why no one ever saw them again, because they didn't recognize them. Yeah. Because this is their first day. They put an application, and I had them go out and act like drug dealers for four hours. It was convincing. We did have cars pull up and give them cash. So the real drug dealers thought these were real drug dealers, but we weren't handing anything but cash to each other. That's hilarious. So these guys, the rubber, th the hose, the, the thing I broke across the shin was actually a stick inside a foam. It, it wasn't real. It wasn't really a baton. I just cracked and sounded good. And it was <laughs> lots of screaming. And 
That's amazing. <laughs> the drug dealers, the real criminals, thought we would abduct them, I guess. I don't know. We never said a word to them. <laughs> um, the two actors <laughs> were beaten with foam rods and took it away. And from that day forward, we had a reputation that was hardcore as body stealers, body, um, body snatchers. And we were very violent, but we didn't even fist fight anyone. We didn't point a gun at anyone. There was no threats to anyone. Right. All we did was a skit, just a, a video skit, right? And suddenly the criminal gangs were all terrified of us. That's amazing. So you talked to And stayed off that corner and family. <laughs> and so it doesn't take a warrant and arrests and violence to actually create safety is what we learned. What we learned is you can peacefully create safety by being innovative, creative, <laughs> uh, and inspire change. Right. So the inspiration was done through an, uh, um, a, a skit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the uh, no violence, no violence. And you talked a little bit about um, the building owner right there. Can you talk more about how you guys make revenue? So when I first started in 1995, um, the, the building owners have been going through years of loss of revenue because people are getting killed and people are moving out and they move in. It looks good during the daylight. And at night, there's shootings and people are getting home invaded. During the daylight, they're getting home invaded as well. Um, and so I went to the home, the building owner. I said, listen, sir, um, you know, your people that are paying you rents, they're, they're, they're being terrorized. They're being home invaded. I said, you know, hire me as the security for the buildings. I'm already working in your parking lot for $4.15 an hour when the minimum wage is $5.15. So that's what that makes sense, but I, I did it. Uh, I work 80 hours, but only get paid for 40 because the people need 80 hours of my time. Right. <laughs> um, and so I don't mind because the objective is to make it safe. The money is not the motivational factor for me. It is the people. I believe that people should not feel terrorized in America in their homes. So understand the impetus for all of this was never money. Uh, there's never a time where working for four fifteen an hour when minimum wage is five fifteen sounds appealing. Right. Okay. So if we were thinking about money, there's no way that would work. So uh, what I did was I said, you know, we can help you. Uh, we'll you know get rid of these these uh, home invasions, these murders. There's one murder a month, and he was like, "Wow, that's a really good idea." Um, you know, good luck with that. He said, uh, uh, "You know, why would you think you could do something when you're not even from Detroit? But why would you think you could do something Detroit police cannot do in 20 years that I've owned these buildings?" I said, "Well, I don't think I can do something that Detroit police can can't do." Um, I started thinking about it. I was like, wow, what, what could I do? If the Detroit Police Department can't do this, how could I do this? I remember thinking like, this probably isn't going to work. I'm probably not going to be able to help people because they're so dangerous. He just brought up a valid point. The Detroit Police Department couldn't defeat these criminals. What could I do? I said, well, I could get the legal right to defend the families. That's all I need. And then I'll, I'll probably get killed. That's probably what's going to happen. Pretty sure uh, watch enough movies and TV shows about gangs to know I could be killed. So I'm probably going to die. But at least this is a good, noble death because I'll be dying for the families that need help in America that are being terrorized. So I was like, well, 
I guess that's my purpose. My purpose was to die for people. And that, you know, that's why I'm here. I guess that's, I ended up on the east side of Detroit. You know, I believe that, that there must be a, a purpose and this must be my purpose. So I just realized I just need the legal rights to actually enforce the rules of this building so I can get him to hire me for whatever amount of money. So I'm, and then he doesn't want to spend any money. So I said, well, give me one for your apartment in each building. I'll get some volunteers to protect your building. There's 10 buildings, there's one square block, three different owners. I'll go to all of them. I'll get a free apartment in each building for a protector. And then I'll get one of the clients to buy communication. They got these Nextel uh, two-way radio cell phones that were just new technology at the time. Very futuristic. And there's no cell phones anymore. But uh, you press a button and everybody comes, you know, from around the area and we converge and help each other protect the buildings 24 hours a day. In exchange, I'll train the people in my tactics so they can know how to protect people and do it legally and protect themselves. Gun disarms, knife disarms, takedowns, it's stuff you're going to need if you're going to be in Detroit, in the inner city, telling violent gang members they can't do something. Okay? So I started training people in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, I, I first guy I got, uh, just got out of prison and uh, got him a place to live there and he agreed to protect the building. So I used regular people off the streets of Detroit to protect the community in Detroit. And uh, they lived in the building. So I got regular people to protect the building. I got multiple people and I trained them. Now we have trained people, one square block, 10 different people, 10 different buildings, uh, ready to converge. And I was rich now because I made a deal where I got a free apartment and a free school, which was 500 square foot uh, facility, the entire school, and uh, which is the office. And uh, it was like 350 square feet. And um, then I also got my free apartment, which is good because I was about to be evicted because I had no money. Uh, and then I made a deal with the building owner to do this. Um, after he, he he basically told me no. So what he did first when I came with his idea, he said, what could you do with the police you can't do? And he said, you know what? Um, no, but um, it's good you're looking out for your people. <laughs> I was like, who are my people? <laughs> what does that mean? I said, first of all, there's all types of people who live in this community. Uh, it is 90% African-American, but there are other people. And you are in this community, so you would need protection too, right. uh, even if you're here during the day. So uh, I was like, you, you need to um, you know, look at this. So I mean, the way I got him to agree to this, because at first he said no, was I, I found out from some of the work in his office, um, I didn't accept the no. I went back a second time for another no. And this time I was armed with truth. I said, you had a murder last month. And every month you have murders, you have multiple, many people move out. I said, what that essentially means is you're losing money. You're losing $60,000 in revenue a month from people moving out. Give me $2,000 a month, give me six months, and let me stop this home invasion, the murders, and these uh, robberies. Give me that. He goes, I don't see what you can do, but fine. I said, Man, plus I need a free apartment, free um, training center, and um, don't evict me. He said, okay, fine. You can pay me off what you owe me for the back rent out of your 2000 a month over the next few months, which was nice of him. Except, of course, he was illegally uh, underpaid. So, <laughs> um, I knew $2,000 a month. Um, you know, if you ever make 2000 a month, you are officially rich. Um, so that's when I knew I made it. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't until uh, 
I had to spend money on the equipment for everyone. But I realized $2,000 was absolutely no money. Right. Uh, and now $20,000 a month is no money. Right. So, um, but it's amazing how much you think differently when, you know, situations are different. Yeah. Um, so, uh, make a long story short, in that six months, uh, we got rid of all the home invasions. We got rid of all the murders. Uh, the building occupancy went from, um, you know, uh, probably like 30% up to um, 90% wow. in six months. <laughs> they became profitable. And as a result, the, home, the building owner who didn't even like me, and didn't like the idea of what we're doing, uh, which is providing safety at all, <laughs> um, he, he didn't think it was going to work. He had no choice but to let me continue on because he's making money now. Mm. All the owners didn't like the idea of having security because they didn't think it was real. They didn't think protection is real because normally it isn't. But this is threat management. This is not security in the traditional sense. It's not policing people. It is threat management. Right. We're managing threats to human beings. And in doing so, you're creating the conditions for non-adversarial interactions, for non-violent outcomes. So that is what makes it work, is that we're not doing what was done before, and now the wealthy people are getting wealthier, the families are the point, and they're getting they're living a safe life. Uh, they're happy, they're safe, uh, there's no rape, no robbery, no home invasion, and the, the police are getting all the credit, which is great. The police are happy, the police uh, commander in that area, um, had their, their 911 calls went from 300 a month down to 10. And those 10 were us calling. Wow. In one square block, 300 calls for 911 a month on average. Wow. So he got, got recognized for having such a serious, significant drop in 911 calls in his jurisdiction, in his, his precinct. So that police uh, commander of that precinct has always supported us behind the scenes. As a result, of having positive effects with absolutely no negatives. So no court dates, no negative news stories, no abuse of people, no abusing people's rights, uh, no invading people's rights. So essentially using psychology to create safety, not using uh, force and violence, uh, even the threat of force and violence. What would you psychology. say to someone, what would you say to the people who argue that demilitarization will actually increase the amount of crime? So militarization or demilitarization, uh, uh, militarization um, <laughs> is an image uh, does stop a lot of crime. Uh, demilitarization increases um, the ability for people to believe that crime is both an option uh, or uh, you know a positive option, possible option, just because they believe that there's more opportunity. So the important thing to remember is. If you're not a violent criminal, you can't understand what it is to be one. Just like a violent criminal can't understand what it's like to be um, a nonviolent criminal or a non-criminal, nonviolent person. They can't understand why you'd ever do that. Many can theorize, but they don't really understand you. If you don't like to rape, rob, and kill people, people that do like to rape, rob, and kill people can't understand each other. They're totally different. But yet, you hear people say all the time, oh, I wouldn't rape, rob, and kill someone. Um, you know, in that case, in this situation, well, because you're not that kind of person, are you? So how, how would you possibly understand them? Right. So I didn't understand them. So what I had to do was learn about them. How did I learn about them? By putting boots on the ground. 
So the demilitarization of that, so think of it this way, undercover cops, undercover law enforcement, undercover protection, executive protection that has no guns you can see, actually creates the idea that you can attack the person. Mm. As a result, you try. As a result, you have violence when the person turns out to be armed and or dangerous because you thought oh, he was just a guy in a suit. Turns out he's actually a person with knives and guns under a suit, and now he's going to stab you and shoot you. Well, if you knew he had knives and guns, you wouldn't even approached. You wouldn't even try it. <laughs> it's just it's just how the predator works. The predator works on perception of opportunity, mm. not actual strategic logic other than primal logic, which is you look like a person I could harm, or this looks like a place I could steal from, or this looks like a place I could rape, probably kill people, or it does not. And so if you don't want to encourage negative behavior, you have to discourage it. And that means you have to be impressive to the people that need to be impressed, not you. You're not a rape problem killer. So how you feel doesn't really matter. What matters is how does a rapist, robber, killer feel about this countermeasure, this protocol, this procedure, this image of the protectors, of this building, of this home? What do they see? That's what determines whether they're going to try to attack you, attack your family, attack your corporation, attack your community, is what they perceive, not what is real, not what is true, and not what you feel. So that's imperative. That's what threat management is about. The system I created, preventive threat management, is about preventive threats, preventing threats through management. So we call the system preventive threat management. Urban survival tactics is how it applies to the person. But the larger side of this is understanding preventive threat management. So militarization, you want the most hardcore looking, extreme looking people and vehicles that you can possibly muster. And then you want them to go greet people in a peaceful, positive, polite, and humble way. They should be the friendliest people ever. And guess what? As a result of that equilibrium, we are always welcome. We are always, no one is ever offended by us except for um, suburbanite people that are <laughs> of, uh, living in a extremely safe scenario. <laughs> they are, you know, feel like, Oh, it's not necessary. Or until their ex-husband or boyfriend is trying to kill them. Then all of a sudden they like us. Um, so in the urban community and in the uh, rural communities where we help people that are actually being victimized by predators, they're very happy to know that there's this extreme presence and capable people that are there to serve and protect them, not the law. Mm. Okay? So that's the key difference here is you're, you're not here to help and provide for the people more than you are for the laws. That is counterproductive for community and for corporations. Okay. So we have to have law enforcement, people that enforce laws, absolutely. But protection is what prevents laws from being broken. And that's where the focus needs to be if we want to create a good quality of life for anyone. And what, how they're dressed doesn't have anything to do with how they behave. How they behave should be always polite respectful, humble, um, and, uh, you know, people also often say to me, they'll say things like, well, how do you have the authority? Who gives you the authority to, to affect change? How can you, you know, where did your authority come from to, 
to do anything. I've, got, I've even had uh, law enforcement officers say that to me before. And, and I, it's like there's, there's like there's like a disconnect that somehow you would have to have authority in order to keep someone alive or stop someone from harming someone. There is absolutely no authority you need for that. You need authority if you're going to go and say, do something that really is outside the bounds of uh, self-defense and defense of others. You would need authority for that. There's be some kind of implied authority, right, to go and um, do certain things. Like one example is uh, the leading cause of death for children in America is the parents. So for that, we would need authority, uh, a judge and some, some a system by which people should be making statements. They should be on file and record, investigation be started, and then you go investigate all those children being uh, harmed in that house. You wouldn't want a corporation doing that. You wouldn't want a company. You wouldn't want your neighbor coming in your house trying to see what they think about your children. You, need, you wouldn't want a, a trained professional that has no money involved in this decision-making verifying your children are not being harmed or that your neighbor's children are, are or are not being harmed. You, you don't really want a corporation doing that. You don't want uh, your neighbor doing that. Uh, you really don't want to do that to your neighbor. Can you imagine going, you're, you're friends with your neighbor, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, buddy, geez, man, you just, you know, hit your kid, I'm going to take you down now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bro, put your hands behind your back. Yeah, buddy. Oh, yeah, I saw you smack your kid. Sorry, man, I got to take you in to the jail downtown. It's what we do. We just do it ourselves. We don't call the police. Now, how, how are your neighbors going to let you take your other neighbor because you saw the kid get slapped by your neighbor? I mean, just the concept. So that's where you need a law enforcement agency that is connected to uh, <laughs> the greater good. You actually need that. That's not connected directly to any of us. It's really supposed to be that way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, you really need that. You, you really don't want to be the guy that goes next door to you know investigate your neighbor. You don't want to be that guy. Nor do you want to be a police officer living next to the person you have to investigate. That's not fair right. to you, your family, your kids. I mean, be real. This concept that people have, these felt these false concepts of, you know, either um hatred of police or hatred of people for the police, or it, none of that, it's all great. That's ridiculous. Police are people, people are police. And we need to just be real about these real subjects. Are, is abuse real? Yes, we need to address those abuse issues. But the police idea of a state law enforcement agency uh, is absolutely required for equilibrium in your society. Now, you may not realize that because you just don't have reason. Like, I'm from Ann Arbor, which is a college town. University of Michigan's there. I never saw police do anything. I never saw them around. I never, I mean, so, you know, hi, how are you? They're very respectful. And I... I just didn't see any police issues. I never saw any, you know, police abuse people or anything like that. I and mean, they were very professional. Uh, when I came to Detroit, I saw a completely different perspective of police and policing. The police in Detroit were not like the police where I'm from. They weren't doing the same thing. So I say that to say that we need a higher level of understanding of, of these realities that police are people, police departments are different based on where they're at. And you need to treat police like they are people and people need to understand that police are just people. So whatever police problems we're having, that's because we have problems with our population. The police are a mirror. They're just our people. Now, you may not like the mirror from whatever perspective you're having, but that's you not liking American people. That's all. They're a direct reflection of the population. 
and a Wayne that you can see them clearly because they're in uniform, uh, standing away from you, looking different than other people. But they're just people. Uh, and in a lot of ways, they are uh, people that have a higher level of credentials than the average person for a function of, of a job. Um, and uh, that being said, the improvements that need to be made are severe and significant. Um, but uh, what I tell people all the time is um, we have created these false ideas from television and, and other things that are just not realistic. When we tell police officers they need to go to a, a situation where people are shooting guns and we don't give them a bulletproof helmet. That makes no sense. We tell them they need to go to a, a place where people are shooting guns, but we don't give them a bulletproof car. Once again, that doesn't make sense. You, you wouldn't send special forces somewhere without a bulletproof vehicle. Like, they're not going to say, just go out there. And look what happened in, in, in uh, Niger. Uh, special forces didn't have a bulletproof vehicle, and they died out there. And that's special forces. So right. the idea is counterproductive. Firefighters get a million-dollar truck. Paramedics get a half-million or forty-million-dollar truck. And police get a family car. And then we get mad if police try to preserve their life when there's a, a guy, a kid inside of a school shooting in Parkland, we want him to go inside and die in a blaze of glory and or kill other children while trying to kill the kid he thought was the one with the gun. None of that makes any sense. Mm. That's what happens when we watch too much TV. What I can tell you is you're never supposed to take your gun, go into a situation with lots of other bodies in there and start shooting a gunman. That's not going to work. That's not the way that's going to happen. And, and you, you actually have real-life application to see what really happens. You can check with there's some Russian stories where they go in a blaze of glory, and it does not go well. Hmm. Uh, you end up seeing a lot of civilians, which they then blame on the gunmen, but it's still avoidable shootings, okay? So the way to do it would be different if you wanted to preserve lives uh, while taking on an active shooter, which is counterproductive. We want to keep schools safe. You know what we do? Don't let gunmen in the school. That's how we preserve uh, safety on an airplane. You know how many active shooters have been on an airplane? Oh, yeah, none. Why? We don't let active shooters even get close to the airplane. That's what we should do for kids in school. You can't get on the school property without permission. You can't get into the school without permission. You can't bring a gun on school property or into the school. It's a very simple process. It's all prevention-based. But you don't build a glass house and then tell people to somehow inherently be safe. If we want safety, it takes strategy, it takes tactics, and it takes a preventive mindset and not, not a response-based mindset. We're being unfair to ourselves, unfair to law enforcement officers. These are inappropriate ideas. So the guy in Parkland, the police officer, they want to prosecute him for not going into the school to shoot the kids. How does he know which kid to shoot? Right. Have you been practicing shooting children lately? I mean, where? where what gun range you go to? You're like, right, I'm going to pick the right kid to shoot the head. I just want my little kid's shooting range. Where did he even get the training to shoot children? I mean, do you think that easy? Like, yeah, I just go inside, find the right kid, shoot him in the head. That's what I do. That's not even, even when you say it out loud, it sounds stupid. Right. So expect some adult or kid to go into a school and shoot the, the right kid first time in their life they're shooting kids. The, the concept is insane. Mm-hmm. And if you knew the hit probability under force on force conflict is very low, go look at paintball. Go look at paintball shooting matches. That'll give you an idea to see how many times people will shoot, actually miss, 
And that's real life, except you know you're not going to die. You still don't want to get hit. Right. Okay? So I say all that to say that we really need, if we're going to talk about public safety, if we're going to talk about the future, we're going to talk about what's wrong and what's right, we have to have a full understanding. And we have to look at all people as people. We have to look at all people as family. Police have to learn to look at all people as their family. And people have to understand that all police are family of someone. And so this idea that you can put them at risk and tell them to go out in a blaze of glory is insane. They have kids. They have moms and dads. They didn't sign up to die. That's from television. That's a movie. That's not real. It's a job. And our job is to keep the police safe so they can go do their job, which we decided not to do. We decided to give them minimum training standards, no bulletproof helmets, no bulletproof cars, no five-way seatbelts. They don't even have a special car. They get a family car. Fire, fire department get a special truck. Paramedics get a special a special car. <laughs> right? right? You've never seen paramedics pull up in a regular car, a regular van. Like, yeah, it's got this van. It's a good VR department guy. <laughs> it's just a regular van. No! Paramedics get, if it's a van, it's like totally customized. Uh, tile, taller roof, all kinds of stuff inside. I mean, it's a totally customized vehicle. And that's for paramedics. Yeah. So we're, we're literally um, twisting the subjects around and then bastardizing them and then saying, look what happened. But the reality is that we treat people like family and we, we, we look at the dynamics of all the issues. If we learn that no matter what the industry is, we need to think about prevention of violence and, and, and negative occurrences and the preservation of life. And anti-kill philosophy is what I've created. Uh, the belief there's always way to preserve life. If we use that anti-kill philosophy, we can create conditions for police and the public to stay alive and safe. Mm-hmm. That's the big point. Can you... Can you talk a little bit about um, domestic violence and what you guys do in cases of that? Domestic violence is something that we've always done. I um, <laughs> unfortunately saw a lot of uh, domestic violence, uh, you know, from helping people in general, training, self-defense. Uh, and what I found was that there is no prevention. There is no protection for domestic violence victims. There's no protection. What there is is a protection order, a piece of paper, but there's not actually any physical protection. So literally, the, the piece of paper will say, hey, guy, you can't go around her. He goes over there and kills her. The piece of paper points the investigator in the right direction of who may have killed her. Well, what if you don't want to die? <laughs> what if you don't want to be killed? That piece of paper is not, in fact, getting a PPO, personal protection order, getting a document from the courts telling a man who was a predator not to hurt the, the victim is a way to get her killed sooner. Because you now made a predator angry. Mm-hmm. What we do is go into a situation, we train the women and the children to protect themselves, how to do so. We physically uh, protect them going to court, hide them in um, locations if there's uh, the predators out here looking to kill them, uh, which happens when um, the man is a dedicated killer. And uh, we physically take them to different cities, we transport them, and we protect them. Um, meaning we stand between them and any bullets that will come to, to them. We don't allow the man to have access to them. Uh, and also, uh, we protect gay males from other gay males that are trying to kill them, and um, uh, males that were, and females are trying to kill them. So it's just 99% of it is males attacking females. But we have had, we've had protect, we've protected, uh, Every kind of person, 
Muslim, Christian, atheist, um, males from females, females from males, it's normally males attacking females and the children. Uh, and we, so we provide three primary services. Uh, first is education so they can protect themselves. The second is physical extractions and protection of court. We go with them to courtrooms. We take them to court. We make sure they're there for the prosecutor to actually prosecute. So the prosecutors actually send women to us uh, because they need the women protected. Otherwise, the women won't come forward in a lot of cases. So we actually help the prosecutors and help the police department by protecting the women so they can successfully prosecute the, the, the violent men, right? right. Um, and in other cases, um, uh, the third thing we do is just help them navigate the legal system. We help them contact police. We help them find the right police. We help them. Uh, a lot of times when, when police departments find out we're involved, they actually take the female victim a lot more seriously and are more proactive about helping them, which is fine by us. We're not trying to <laughs> do something instead of the police. We're trying to help the victim. If the police want to do it, not us, that's great. You know, we, we already pay taxes for that. And if they have the time, the manpower, and the willpower to do it, great. They also have more resources than I do. So that's, that's great. <laughs> so everyone's a winner. At the end of the day, the bottom line is making sure the sisters, the mothers, the daughters that are being attacked and their children are alive. That's the point. Not who does it. I don't care if it's um, the, the police doing it or if it's us doing it. You know, it's great if the police do it. And that does happen sometimes where the police actually, you know, step in and say, hey, we got this in our jurisdiction. And that's great because honestly, our resources are always tight. So when we do this, it's a great sacrifice of our time, energy and money. But we're willing to do it. And my staffers, I'm really proud of them because I don't pay them for this. I don't get paid for this. This is a volunteer thing. They're not required to do it. If they want to help victims, they can. If not, they don't. Uh, I can't make them go volunteer to protect domestic violence victims. Uh, but we've done so successfully for 25 years. Hundreds of women and their children are alive. And we're very proud of that. We went into their lives. Uh, we made it so they're safe. And we kept them being raped off and murdered, which is so which is amazing, man. Uh, some, of the, some of the stories are absolutely amazing. Uh, we had a, a situation where one lady kept calling because her son... And her daughters were being abused by their father. And um, this is an executive in a major car company uh, out in the suburbs. He's very wealthy. And um, the police department was very intimidated by him. He kind of reminded me of um, uh, like uh, what you think of as someone that is a uh, politician, um, you know, someone that's in a powerful position, executive. Um, kind of uh, like Mick, like 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 Romney, like the kind of look like Romney. So you know he looks like he's in charge because he is in charge of some things. So the police uh, would say to them like when they were getting attacked, one of the, the daughters um, had her head put up in the water in the kitchen. When a police officer came in, he's so enthralled by their house that he could barely pay attention to what they're saying. You know, like our father, you know, held our, um, you know, us under the water and. and Put the girl's head under the water, like literally tried to drown her, um, like in front of him. And that's because she interfered in the beating of her, of her little brother, who is a quadriplegic. He literally liked to whip him for whatever reason. They don't know. Um, and so uh, when the kids would resist, he would attack them and the mom. It was, it was uh, two girls, uh, one son um, that's not um, uh, handicapped. Or, or challenged, physically challenged, and the mom, and the mom 
as a college graduate uh, with a master's degree in education and um, uh, very articulate until she was constantly contacting judges and prosecutors. For whatever reason, they couldn't do anything. The police said that last time they were attacked, the police said, well, there's five of you in here, four of you. Um, why don't you just attack him and stop him from doing something? You guys handle it yourself. There's no way you can do something with all of you fighting against him. Now, his daughters, one's blonde, one's brunette. They're both slim, maybe you know, five, 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 six, um, you know, 120 pounds. This guy is six foot four, uh, you know, like 270. And these, these little girls and their mom are supposed, and the, and the teenage little brother are supposed to attack the father. That doesn't make any sense. So, make a long story short, he ended up going to prison because he was caught. Uh, doing that beating uh, at a um, grocery store out in the suburbs, and some soccer mom <laughs> blocked him in and placed him under citizen's arrest mm. and got him prosecuted. He was literally whipping, and John was on camera, his quadriplegic son that's in a wheelchair that he steers with his mouth, and he can't communicate, can't even use words. Wow. But here this executive is beating his son. We don't know what that's about. Mm. But, but before that, though, and I, I'm sad and proud of this, um, you know, uh, I'm very sad because they came back and told me a story that they were very proud of. Their father was uh, trying to submerge the blonde daughter's head under the water in the kitchen in the sink. And the family put him in a chokehold that I showed him how to do and took him down and knocked him out. And they were very happy to do that to their father. Wow. And, you know, that, that was very upsetting to me. But, you know, unfortunately, the only solution for this family was they had to take out their father, mm. you know, make him unconscious, suffocate him, suck the oxygen from his brain in order to save themselves from his from his aggression. Mm. And then he went to prison after that for um, for abusing the son. But what was what was amazing, you know, I, I'm I'm, just, I'm happy that you know the tactics helped them. I'm sad that they had to do this to their own father. And um, you know, now the, the blonde daughter is a physician. The, the brunette daughter. Uh, who choked the father unconscious. Uh, she is a um, lawyer um, that all went to University of Michigan. The mom, she got her master's from University of Michigan. Uh, the son, who's about to graduate from University of Michigan. And, um, you know, so this is a, a, what I would characterize as an upper middle class family that, um, you know, lived in probably like a 10,000 square foot home, uh, you know, had a beautiful life, and were experiencing terror. And so my point in saying that is that what we do is we help people in all areas um, uh, survive. The whole point is survival, not where do you live. They happen to be living in a beautiful uh, suburban neighborhood, but we help people in suburbs, we help people in country towns, and we help people in the inner city. So we help people everywhere. And it turns out people need help everywhere. Even if you don't, remember, there's a bunch of other people where you live, mainly women, children, and elderly, that need help. Mm. No matter where you live, it's imperative to remember that. Uh, you may not need help, but there's lots of other people that do. And are that's, you seeing... That, right? That's why 85% of the police in America, 85% of the police in America do not work in cities. Remember that. 85%. And 78% of the people that are arrested by the police for illegal drug possession are people outside of cities. Mm. So we don't see that on TV shows like cops and movies, but they 
the majority of people being arrested do not live in cities in this country. Mm. And are you seeing okay. other people follow this model, your guys' model? There are people training with us, but you have to train with us. It would be like, uh, you know, trying to um, learn a certain style of yoga without going to the place to learn the style of yoga. Right. You know, people do that. They're like, I saw it, so I'm going to try it. And it's sad. You, you really have to train. Um, imagine, <laughs> so what we do is so severe and significant. It's like, uh, it's like heart surgery. Like, like, I don't like heart surgery. Uh, maybe it's like, um, you know, it is very dangerous. What we do is very dangerous. Six of us have been shot. Mm. But, uh, five males and one female. Okay, all of us are alive. We stabilize our wounded and transport our wounded to level one trauma hospitals. So understand this is very serious what we do. Um, and and um, no victims have ever been injured or killed. And we have no court dates, no lawsuits for 25 years. Wow. Now, that is very hard to do. And so if you try to copy us without going through the, through the education, you're going to be destroyed. I promise you. And I tell people this all the time. You have to have the education. We're a training system. We're franchising our educational system and urban survival tactics. But you have to come to Detroit to learn the Vipers program. You have to come here. We have people coming from other city, states, and countries right now. They're learning because we're going to franchise them to their different city, states, and countries. And our objective is to show them what to do and how to do it um, so they can create safety safely. Mm. And that means not violence. And that means not having interactions that are adversarial with the people in the communities and with the public or with police. Mm. It's about stopping predators, right? Any prosperity that can come would come as a byproduct, but it can't be a focal point. The only thing you need to focus on is creating uh, a positive environment Prosperity naturally occurs in a positive environment. You can't stop it. You can't stop capitalism. You can't stop free market growth in an environment which is enriched with protection because that is the foundation of prosperity. Mm. Literally, a foundation of prosperity starts and ends with protection. Mm. And what's your guys' website? Our website is threatmanagementcenter.com. Okay, great. And just to finish up here, are you guys seeing an uptick in violence? We talked about this before, but are you guys seeing anything from um, these protests that are going on? We are not seeing any uptick in violence in the neighborhoods whatsoever. And since COVID, um, we have seen a severe and significant drop in crime overall uh, in our communities. uh, We protect approximately 5,000 families in Detroit, our staff. And um, we have one private community um, and one half private community and the majority of our other communities, corporations and individual family homes that we protect are all uh, on public streets and um, not in private locations in gated communities or anything like that. So regular people have access to, um, you know, our, our contact with our staff members and our, and our uh, clients. So we are in Detroit, real Detroit, urban Detroit, not like a suburb of Detroit. Um, and we are seeing a, a, a decrease in violence overall. Um, however, I have heard from some police that there's not just downtown Detroit, obviously with the riots, there's actual protests. Most of the riots and protesters uh, seem to be from the suburbs 
coming to Detroit, um, they were characterized as anarchists um, or violent anarchists, not peaceful anarchists. And um, they were uh, Antifa, um, uh, identified as you know, possible Antifa people. Um, you know, my my personal view is I'm against fascism, so I'm not sure how you know anti-fascism is bad, but um, I do destruction of property is bad. Um, and uh, but I am uh, definitely pro-anti-fascism, uh, so I support that part of their arguments. But as far as throwing bricks at people and violence, you know, that's it's just counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Although not well for Christmas addicts, to be honest. <laughs> Somehow we forget this guy with a warrant for his arrest threw a rock at law enforcement. Uh, didn't turn out to be a positive thing, but in reality, without that guy, that black guy with a warrant for the rock, there would be no United States of America. Right. Right. So, yeah, I do not advocate throwing rocks at law enforcement or uh, being against um, uh, the rules or laws. You know, however, we do need to be honest that change. Change is going to happen. It's either going to change. Change is going to happen intellectually, or it's going to be radical and physical. Mm -hmm. I support intellectual change. We should be able to think through this and say, "Listen, let's look at all people. All lives should matter, and that should not be considered a derogatory term. We need to use straight etymology. There are no such thing as black people or white people. We know that because if you go to a car dealership and you ask for a black car or a white car, it's not going to look like any people you know." And if it comes out the same color as any people you know, you want your money back. Right. If you are an African-American and you order a car, a black car, and it comes out, they deliver that card, it's the same color as your skin, you want your money back. <laughs> if you're a European-American and you're like, I want a white car, and it shows up that your same skin color, <laughs> you're going to be sick. That is not a white car. <laughs> you know it's not. Right. And albinos are the palest people in the world, and nobody ever claims that there's, you know, a problem with albinos seeking their own nation or uh, power to them or you never see them massing up and throwing their fists saying white power. Okay? <laughs> right? They can't even join the KKK. And they're paler than any KKK members. Right. Oh, by the way, 80% of albinos live in Africa. Mm. Just so you know. Yes. And none of them can join the KKK. <laughs> so they're technically the whitest people in the world can't even be in the KKK. So there is no white people or black people. There's no race. Uh, what there is is um, ethnic identity. And ethnic identity is based on your family's land of origin, your family's language, your family's name, lineage, right? That's who you are. You're not, you're not, you're not who you are because you're skin color. There's no time in the Civil War where people are like, oh yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna fight you, man, but you know. We have the same skin color, so we're not really going to have a civil war. That did not happen. <laughs> World War II and World War I, uh, if there was this thing as black-on-black crime, we'd have to call those white-on-white -white wars, like the Civil War. If black-on-black -black crime was a thing, then white-on-white -white war would be a bigger thing. Right. There's no such thing as color-coding people. <laughs> people are not color-coded, and you can't use that to understand any part of human societal uh, structures and constructs. It's completely false. That would be like saying when when the Nazis uh, killed six million Jews, it's like uh, white people killing white people. Right. Right. How would you understand the conflict there if you're going to call Jews or or clearly European and and uh, lacking 
an abundance. You're not having an abundance of melanin. And then their German neighbors who also do not have an abundance of melanin. How could you call them both white people and understand the conflict on why some of them are being killed? Right. Right. So using skin color coding would not work in any way to understand any real significant issues under any conditions. And we need to let it go. In order for us to, as a society to evolve, we can't understand uh, police problems, public problems today, historically, or in the future, if we're going to still lie to each other and call each other a color. Right now, 70% of the population of the prisons uh, do not have an abundance of melanin in their skin. However, 20% of them are called non-white Hispanics, even though Spain is in Europe, which makes Spanish people Europeans. And if they were running down the street and a police officer saw them do a crime or looking for them, they would say male white running down the street. Yeah. They wouldn't say non-white Hispanic. I'm looking for a non-white Hispanic over here down running down the street. It's not true. They say white male, male white. Mm-hmm. Mike Whiskey. <laughs> but, oh, the bottom line is uh, we need to look at that differently as well. But when you call people colors and try to use that as some type of identification, it doesn't hold up to the reality of the problem or conditions or situations. Because millions, I have a cousin who looks just like you, and both of his parents, well, one of his, mo- his mom's Irish with red hair from Ireland, and his father is African American. He literally looks just like you, his twin brothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so you would not know millions of Americans of African heritage actually look completely 100% European. Right. There's literally no way to tell. And as far as Muslims, do you know the majority of Muslims don't look like the Mexicans in the movies? Muslims? Did you know that? Yeah. So we, we have to throw away all these falsehoods that we have in our society to understand the world we live in. So uh, Persians hate Arabs. Persians are Iranians. They are also more European looking. <laughs> there are blonde-haired, blue-eyed Iraqis. They look like they're from Southern California on the beach. So you cannot use these movies. <laughs> the, the, the Mexican-looking Muslim person, you know, that says infidel, which, by the way, is a word that means non-believer in Christianity. Infidelis is a Latin word, uh, not an Arabic word, and it does not translate. Hmm. So you see it in the movie, and they go, the infidel. That, that really is not supposed to be meaning not a religious person. It means a person who doesn't believe in Christianity Interesting. specifically. And, and um, in Arabic, they say the word kafir. Kafir means non-believer in the truth. Mm. It's not the same thing as non-believer in, a, in this religion. Specifically, infidel, infidelity, infidelis. This is a Latin prefix from the Catholic religion. And they call anyone who did not believe in Catholicism infidels. So the reason why Arabic people can't say the infidel right, except in the movies, is because that's not a word from Arabic. (laughs) These all American soldiers put that on their shirt, like proud infidel. That means you don't like Christianity, dude. You don't, you not understand? It means you're not liking Christianity. You're against Christianity. Um, an infidel is someone who doesn't believe in 
Christianity. So you don't say you're a proud infidel (laughs) (laughs) on your rifle, on patches on your uniform, t-shirts, hats, bumper stickers. How angry are they going to be when they find out they're saying (laughs) they're proud to be a non-believer in Christianity? Right. Somebody's going to look it up one day. You know what they did is they changed in the early dictionary. They're like, well, actually, we think it means this now. No, no. (laughs) No! can't just change it if the movie said something he made millions of patches so my point in saying all that is this man public safety uh business the free market um societal structure societal constructs all those things are related to prosperity protection safety education and evolution mm. but you can't lie we can't lie and go forward we're living lies calling people blacks and whites and the only reason that African-Americans think that they're black is because the uh, Mali empire and the Mauritanians were still selling Africans right now. Yeah, right now. Muslim Africans are selling in marketplace as they have done today. They're still doing it as they did for 700 years before they sold the first African that is not from their kingdom to the first European who called them Negro, which means black. Because they're black to them as slaves. It's a, it's a derogatory term. It's not really, they know they're not really black. It's a term. <laughs> to, derog- to be derogatory, don't call them African. You want to call them something that's not good. Right. Black, you know? So the reality is uh, when African-Americans are calling themselves black, it's the new one where we, we used to be Negro or something else with colored. And now we're black. Oh, maybe we're uh, colored again later. Um, uncolored or unnegro or who hey, Listen, Americans of African heritage all have a last name from European people because all of us are mixed with Europeans. Right. So there is no purebred Africans in America hundreds of years after enslavement. We need to also own that. We're all actually ethnically mixed. In the United States, we are not um, uh, separate. We are actually together. We need to own that. Uh, and, and that's the only way we can really move forward is the truth. We didn't pick a last name. That is our actual ancestor's last name. Mm. That's embarrassing at a certain level. But it's a reality. We need to accept that uh, um, those last names are not African last names for a reason. Mm. That they're ancestors. Right. That's why we look. We look. And so, once again, we're not a separate group. We're actually one group of people. Uh, This is Camelot. This is a place of mixed ethnic people from all over the world. And it continues to keep mixing. Um, It's just part of a societal structure. The reason why uh, Irish and Italians um, and African-Americans are so closely related is because the Irish and um, Italians were Catholic and they were called dogs when they moved to America. The Irish and Italians did not have human rights. So they automatically connected with African Americans uh, and they formed communities and families. So we need to be honest about our history to understand why things are the way they are now. And then we can understand then that all these false uh, collectives and and separative uh, concepts are just false constructs. 
they're completely false. And we need to stop it. Because it's also counterproductive, but it's also just lies. So it's not just not cool. It's just lying. <laughs> there are no white people. Germans, Italians, French, Greeks are all proud people of Europe, and they're not the same people. Caribbean people, yes, dark-complected, not the same as African-Americans. Asians, not the same as Jamaicans. And they're proud of each other independently. They're not like, oh, you're like me. We both have an accent. No, they're, Asians and Jamaicans are different people. Just because they look similar skin tone doesn't make them the same people. Just like Greeks and Italians. And so just like Greeks, Italians, French, uh, Germans have been at war since before they were called Greek, French, Italian, Germans. <laughs> They've been at war the whole time. They're still fighting over money. They're still fighting each other. <laughs> Brexit. Right. They're still fighting. Right? Uh, Irish. Uh, uh, the Irish are still fighting in Ireland on, based on where you live, in the mountains or down in the valley. The Irish are still fighting in Ireland. They're still fighting the skies. And they're still fighting Britain. Based on whether you believe that you're a pope or you're, you don't believe in the pope. But you're both Christian. But you got to kill each other. Yeah. And... <laughs> And then the other thing is Ethiopians and Eritreans getting along because they're tanness. No, Eritreans and Ethiopians are not getting along. They are both the same people, actually, but they're not getting along. Mm. Uh, and there are 54 other African countries that have um, many different dis disputes internally and externally. Skin color does not make them kin. Skin does not make you kin. It's not real. There's never been a time where Japanese and Chinese and Koreans got along and, and yelled yellow power and connected with each other because of yellow power. There's no yellow power. It's because people are not colors. And your skin is not your connection. Your family name, your family language, and your family's land of origin is what connects you culturally and ethnically. So there is no race. And as soon as we can accept that truth, we can then move to the next thing and have a conversation about a problem. But imagine if we're living a lie and we believe we're colors, right? And then we want to have a conversation. It's not going to work. Right. It's not going to work, right? Not, not in World War II in Germany, not in the Civil War in the United States, and not today in the American uh, cities and rural countries, suburban communities. We're not going to understand our problems if we don't identify uh, people correctly in situations honestly. Um, uh, and then our, all of our solutions will be prevented if we're not honest about the problems in the first place. Right. So just honest etymology and remove all other uh, uh, American bullshit that we've learned over the years. Let that go and move forward together because if we don't, we'll destroy everything. Right. So you keep living lies. Lies dement reality. That reality has a consequence. Right? And now you're no longer German now you have to wear this yellow thing on your arm and they're going to kill you and by the millions because you're a different type of German. You're all German. Everybody speaks German. Everybody lives in the same German blocks. Everyone's working together as Germans. But suddenly, because you go to a different place of religion and have a different name, you're no longer the German that we allow to live. Right. And then they killed a bunch of other Germans too. Yeah. So really the point was about killing, wasn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if it was about skin color, then Germany would not have killed 20 million pale Christian Russians. It was more like 30 million Christians. That's just World War II. 
So at no time was skin color for Europeans a connection. There is no white people connection, just like there is in Asia or Africa. Uh, the indigenous populations in the Americas have always had wars with each other. Skin color was not it, ever. So we just need to face that fact to move forward. And a lot of our other problems will start to go away once we start telling the truth about everything. Right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. If there's anything else that you would like to say, um, and if you want to tell people where they can find you, that would be great. Great. You can go to uh, YouTube, look up. We have about 600 videos on there. Uh, you can Google Detroit Threat Management Center. You can also YouTube um, Police Testimonials, Detroit Threat Management Center, keywords, and you'll see police officers testifying that our training uh, helped them protect themselves, uh, keep themselves alive, help them protect citizens and not injure citizens when subjugating citizens. So our techniques help police officers not injure themselves, not kill people, and not get killed. And it have, enables officers to more easily take people into custody without injuring people, including avoiding a positional asphyxiation, uh, like with the Floyd situation, which happens all the time. And it's not just police. Regular people are uh, putting people into custody and they are um, accidentally killing people all the time. It's, it's not abnormal. It's just that it is something you're trained not to do in a professional sense. So these police officers should have known not to do that because specifically positional asphyxiation is something they're taught not to do if they went to any legit uh, police training. So it's a very basic thing because you can actually kill someone a lot of different ways under custody conditions. So without training, you're literally going to be killing people all the time. This is just one of the ways, which is to kneel on someone while they're on the ground. Another way to do it is literally while they're exasperated, like running, is just to handcuff them, lay them flat on their, on their chest, uh, on the ground, or on a seat. And what will happen is your chest just decompresses, and the air comes out a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and you actually die uh, slowly mm. because you can't inflate your chest unless you're really thin. Really skinny people can, can survive like that. The bigger people cannot. Normal people do not have the ability to keep oxygenating themselves uh, while handcuffed and um, breathing face down. So you're supposed to put people on their side and they're handcuffed so they can still breathe. That's the bottom line. Hmm. Okay. Um, and that's known. Okay? That's not my science. That's the science of uh, is known for uh, medically for how to avoid positional asphyxiation. Okay. Hmm. So uh, we teach people that, civilians and police, and that's because that's what we've had to do many times, to not injure and kill people. So the bottom line is there are solutions for the public and for the police, and they're positive. Uh, when you go to our website, you'll see police officers testifying to that. You'll see victories. You go to, we don't have victims, we have victories. Detroit Threat Management Center victory testimonials, domestic violence testimonials. If you Google that, you look that up on YouTube, You'll see all these people. You see women, old people, young people, every ethnic group, all the people we helped for free. Not all of them. We only put a few of them up. But uh, you'll see a lot of these women, senior citizens, people that were terrorized. And we helped them and we removed the terror. So that's what we call this anti-terrorism. We stop people from being terrorized. Right here in America. It's a great thing. Um, so at the end of the day, it is through education, uh, and truth, Truth and etymology, using words properly, right? That we can create a more cohesive society, and we do it together 
uh, and the objective of our, of our franchise facilities is going to be to bring urban survival tactics training to regular people so they can prevent violence by having the skills to do that, right? To disarm guns, disarm knives. Um, the, uh, the, the young man who was killed by the guys in the truck down in Georgia, um, uh, he was uh, able to actually get into position to disarm that shotgun. And he almost had the shotgun away from him. He literally grabbed the barrel, sidestepped, and he punched the, the, the aggressor uh, instead of redirecting, grab, and um, he did a face peel him, peeled his eye off, peeled him off that shotgun, and then used that shotgun to defend his life. And that's the kind of stuff we teach. We teach you how to disarm pistols, shotguns, and rifles to protect yourself and your family. And uh, you'll see on our website police officers uh, testifying that they're alive because we train them in how to use our tactics to protect their lives from violent criminals, people that have intention to kill police officers. They're alive now because of that training. And then you'll see also um, domestic violence victims. You'll see um, uh, also testimonies from people that use the training, regular people, um, you know, college uh, educated professionals, uh, to factory people, to regular people that just used our training to protect themselves. If you look stuff on YouTube, you look up testimonials, Detroit Threat Management Center, Vipers program, you'll see a lot of testimonials. Just put in make sure you keyword testimonials. And I'll definitely link to those under the, underneath the podcast too. But uh, I really appreciate everything you're doing. I hope your message gets out and I hope you can expand. Thank you so much for yes, coming on. Thank you. It's the weekend and we can let go. It's the full send and it's the get-go. It's the get-go.